Well, um, I, I'm not really ashamed to tell you, but when I was four years old, I had a favorite superhero, as as many of you do now. Now, you know, we live in the day of like Marvel Cinematic Universe, and and you know, it was it was none of those. Like that, they, these are weak heroes compared to what my hero was. My hero, when I was four years old, was He Man. Anybody know who He Man is? Yes, thank you. Oh my gosh. Like there was nothing better than He-Man when I was a kid. Now, as an adult, I've gone back and watched like the Toys That Made Us documentary, and it turns out all of the He-Man cartoons were just commercials meant to sell the toys. I thought it was the other way around. It was all a psychological game with the kids. Go go watch the documentary. But He-Man was legit. I had everything I could have He-Man. I had the little action figures. But my, my most prized He-Man possession at four years old was a He-Man wallet, which was just the bomb. It was so good. It had Velcro on it, right? And so like everything was secure. Um, it had a secret pouch. Like there was a secret liner on the back that you could open it and you could put all of your change in. And at four years old, there was not a coin or a dollar or a cool-looking paperclip that I did not pick up and stuff into my He-Man wallet. This thing was bulging at the seams, and it is my most prized possession. I loved this He-Man wallet. Uh, you fast forward a little bit, and uh, my brother, I have, a, I have a brother who is older than me, five years older than me. His name is Jason. My brother Jason and I were invited to my aunt's house, which is kind of a normal thing. You go to your aunt and uncle's house, except we lived in Texas, and my aunt and uncle lived in Florida. And so uh, this, is, this is before 9-11, before anything weird the airports, my parents just like brought us to the airport and like got us to the ramp and like waved at us. And me and my brother, four-year-old and a nine-year-old wander onto the airplane uh, and we fly away. We go to Florida. We go to my aunt and uncle's house and we have a great time. Uh, during this time, uh, of course, this is the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, you could just leave kids for 10 minutes or so alone and nothing would happen except she didn't know me and my brother that well. Uh, and so what had happened is uh, she leaves to go get the newspaper. Paper or something. She's gone for like five minutes, and my brother, he has gone outside. And in my four-year-old head, the most hilarious joke popped up. I get to lock my brother out of the house. Yes. And so I locked my brother out, brother out of the house. He comes, and he knocks on the door, and he wants back in. And I'm, I'm not having it. I'm laughing. It, it, like, if you have a four-year-old nearby, just think of the giggly, like, up to something kind of a laugh. That's, I'm, I'm thinking it's hilarious. And so the knock is just, hey, man, let me in. And then it's a Hey, let me in. And there's a boo boo. And now I'm scared. Like, I'm not letting this guy anywhere in. I don't, there's no adult near me. I'm, I'm terrified. And then the hit gets louder and louder. And there's this moment, uh, this is not an exaggeration. There's this moment where a hole is starting to form next to the door because he found a, a golf club and he's like coming through the sheetrock. It's like one of those, like, here's Johnny moments, right? And I, I don't know what's going to happen. I, like, if he gets in, I'm four years old. It could be anything. Uh, and about that moment, my aunt drives up and she is very upset, as you would be as well. Uh, so she tells my dad, who is literally on the other side of the country from me, and now I have like the, the I'm, I'm like on death row at this point. Like, I don't know how long my stay of execution is, but this is not going to go well. And I get home. My dad's very disappointed in me, very disappointed in my brother. Uh, he takes my brother into a room and has a conversation with him. I'm sure a conversation and then some. Uh, and, and he has to pay something towards the damage that's done. And then he comes to me, four-year-old Jesse, and he's like, well, you know, you have to pay for the damage that, that you've caused. You were a part of that. And I have nothing. I'm four years old. I don't have a job, but I have this one thing. I have this He-Man wallet, and it's stuffed full of my most prized possessions. And my dad made me go to my room, get my He-Man wallet, and walk it into him and just hand it to him. 
And that was the last I ever saw of my He-Man wallet. It, it is like, I, I'm about to cry right now just telling you the story. Like, I, I loved that He-Man wallet. Have you ever had to give up something so precious to you? Oh my gosh, we're, we're in the middle of a series. Actually, we're ending a series today called First Things First. We're kind of tracking through the Old Testament. The last message of the series is the story of Abraham, not, not his He-Man wallet, but his son. He is asked by God, bring me your son, bring him to me. I want you to give him to me. I'm taking your son. And, and that weight of what that would feel like to give up, this is, this is your most prized thing in life. We want to we wanna explore that together uh, today. So we'll be in Genesis 22 as we begin, uh, if you would like to turn there. What we've done for this series uh, is that we're really trying to understand uh, a little bit of uh, Bible knowledge. Like we want to get a little Bible IQ as a church. Like, okay, what are the opening stories of Genesis? What are the high peaks so that I can understand uh, what's going on? Uh, more than that, uh, we're also tracking the faithfulness of a God, the faithfulness that we just sang about. We're tracking that even though he's a God who created things in perfect order and it broke, he's still a God who's seeing his promises through to completion. And so as we've looked at it, we see that God has, he's made a world and then he places humanity, us, as his representatives. We are his image bearers and we are to represent God's desires in all of this world. And the first thing we do, Adam and Eve do, uh, is that they represent their own desires instead and they fall. We call it the fall. Uh, and now sin has entered the world and chaos has entered the world. And now the representatives of God are kind of going in two different directions. And then we see over and over again God's will and God's desire to bring his people back to him. It is a persistent problem. And all of the solutions that we think would work, oh, just just fix me. Oh, just give me another chance. Oh, just get all of the problems around me away. God is demonstrating really, not just in Genesis, what we've looked at, but really all of the Old Testament, God is demonstrating that no amount of human effort can overcome the problem that began in the garden. We, we just can't. Um, we need something outside of the garden, something bigger than us to accomplish it. And so we celebrate, uh, as followers of Jesus, we celebrate that Jesus did come and Jesus did overcome that. And so now we live in a world that we can see hope. And so in Genesis 22, uh, we're going to pick up uh, the heading at the top of my Bible says the sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, if you know this story well, you know uh, some things. I'm just going to repeat them. And maybe everybody knows them, but just for the sake of the fact that some of us may be new to the Bible. Uh, Abraham is uh, he's an Old Testament character. He is the, the beginning of Judaism. Uh, there's a song, Father Abraham had many sons. You know, everybody, now right foot, okay? And then everybody starts singing the song. Uh, he, he is the beginning of Judaism. He's also the beginning of the Arab nation. Uh, if, if you uh, ask a Muslim, like, okay, who, where's the beginning of, of Muslim thought? Uh, they would also point back to Abraham. Abraham is, is the beginning of that. Abraham was chosen randomly, almost seemingly, uh, from a group of people for no like character reason, per se, to be a follower of God. God just says, hey, I want you to leave your father. I want you to leave your people and just follow me. And Abraham says, okay. And he takes all of his you know, family that wanted to go, and he starts following God wherever he led him. At one point, God promises Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of all the nations. I'm going to bless you beyond all comparison, but he's childless. Um, towards the end of his life, he's approaching uh, you know, 90-ish. Uh, he starts to think, you know what, maybe God needs some help with his promise. Maybe, maybe God's like, you know, maybe God forgot what he was going to do. And so he has a child with another woman, not his wife. He has a child with another woman, Ishmael, uh, whom he loves, Ishmael. Uh, Sarah 
Sarah ends up getting pregnant with Isaac, who we're going to read about in a moment. It's a miraculous story. But when she gives birth to Isaac, she becomes immediately jealous of the other woman and the first son and demands that Abraham get, get rid of him. Go. And so Abraham loses his first son, not the son of the promise, but he loses his first son, who is a teenager at this moment. It's not just some four-year-old leaving. It's, it's like a 15-year-old and the mom asks God to bless them, but he has to watch them leave. And then after that moment, there's a little bit of a, a war, a little skirmish with Abimelech. Uh, we get to this story. Uh, God is going to ask Abraham to do the unthinkable. So starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. This is one of my favorite things in the Old Testament is that people, uh, you'll see like Isaiah. God's like, hey, Isaiah, here I am. Like, yep present. I'm, I'm right here. It's always kind of a funny thing that people respond to God that way. I always, always found it humorous. But now doing the study, I realized something that I've never realized before. When, when God showed up in the garden with Adam and Eve, they hid from God. Hey, Adam. Nope, not here. I'm ashamed. Uh, when, when men of God, uh, people of God hear God's voice and they feel so confident in their God that they don't hide their shame. They're just like, I'm right here, fully exposed I'm right here. Uh, hey, Abraham, here I am. Verse 2, he said, Take your son, okay, which one? Your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, this is, this is a really confusing moment for Abraham. He's only been following God for the last 10 or 15 years, but they don't have any of what we call the Old Testament right now. And so there might be a question to Abraham, like, okay, is this going to be a God that does like child sacrifice-y things? It hasn't been outlawed technically yet, and so he, he may be confused by this. But clearly, God is saying, get Isaac. I want you to go to this mountain, Moriah, uh, and I'm, I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. I want, I want to make two quick observations uh, that may be helpful for you in future Bible study. One, Moriah. Moriah is mentioned here, and then it comes back up later when Solomon decides to build the temple. He builds the, the first temple on a mountain. Anybody want to take a stab at the name of the mountain? Moriah. So 500 years after this moment that uh, Abraham's about to offer Isaac uh, as a sacrifice on the mountain Moriah. 500 years later, Solomon builds a temple there and they perform sacrifices and they worship God on that same mountain. Fast forward, this after that temple is destroyed, they build the second temple there. Jesus eventually walks into the temple on Moriah, the same mountain that Isaac would have been uh, offered as a sacrifice, but that's that's the same mountain. And so one, one thing about our God is that he has a really long-term memory. This is, this is 2,000 years before Jesus, uh, and he's talking about a mountain, and he keeps coming back to that same mountain for the sake of sacrifice. The second observation I want to make for your Bible study, it says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Uh, I, as I was studying this, I was reading a, a commentary, and, and I read this line, and I didn't believe it. Uh, so I had to check it, and it turns out it's true. This is the first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible. This right here, this story. Now, when, when we talk about love, we always talk about, well, God is love. And then we think of phrases like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The first time love is mentioned in the Bible is God telling Abraham, I want you to give me your only begotten son, the one you love. And you know the story, if, if you know Abraham, that he ends up uh, being rescued from that. It's just fascinating to me 
Um, the first time we see love is this heartbreaking story. Verse 3, so what do you do when God tells you to do this? You, you listen. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, it took three days of walking. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Hey, you guys, you stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again, or come again to, to you. So there's something in Abraham's voice right here, by the way, that he's telling these other people, Hey, me and Isaac, we're going to go up here. We're going to come back to you. And so some people are like, Well, Abraham certainly knows the character of his God. And maybe that's it. Maybe he just has faith that God can work this out. Um, maybe he's lying. Maybe he doesn't want Isaac to hear what's about to happen, but he seems to think that he's going to come back and he's going to bring his son. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they both uh, both of them together went, or they went both of them together. This is this is a weird moment. So so you're, you're uh, hanging out with your dad, you're, uh, you're a teenager. You're 15, 16, 17 years old. And your dad's like, hey, we're going to go make a sacrifice to God. Sweet, let's go. And I've got these two young guys. They're carrying everything. And then we get to where we see the place. And dad tells the other two guys to hang back. Okay. And then he takes the wood and he puts the wood on Isaac, his son. He's like, Isaac, I want you to carry this wood. Isaac is now carrying the very wood that he is supposed to be sacrificed on in a moment. He is carrying it up the hill. His dad holds in his hand the knife and the, the fire, the thing that he's going to use to make fire. And there's got to be a weird silence at this moment. You're, you're looking at dad like, hey, this is different than anything we've, we've done before. He says uh, in verse 7, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, Hey, dad, my father... And he said, here, here I am, my son. There's that phrase, here I am, again. You know, I, I try to wonder, if, if I'm dad at this moment, uh, I think I probably just tell my kid to be quiet. I, I'm, I'm going to hide my tears. I don't really know what's about to happen. This has got to be a chaotic moment. Abraham's got to be twisted up. He's like 100 years old at this moment, and, and this is the son that he's waited for his entire life, and now in his head he's about to lose his favorite, most precious thing in the world. And his son's got a question. Dad, I got a question. I don't see a lamb nearby. But he says, hey, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He doesn't hide from his son. And he said, hey, behold, I see, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. That line, uh, God will provide for himself uh, the lamb for a burnt offering, there's a weird wording in Hebrew, and one way of reading that could be that God will provide himself as an offering for the uh, burnt offering. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This is getting really scary, y'all. Like we're, we're, we're like way after the fact, and we know that God is not a God of child sacrifice, but look how close this is getting. Like he, they took Isaac, he lays the wood off his hand. He's like, what's next? It's like, hand me your hand, son. It's like, okay, dad. And then he binds his hands. Now, Abraham is an old, frail man. Uh, he has a young teenager here who, like if he wanted to, he could just like kick his dad in the knee, the bad knee, the arthritic knee, you know, uh, and probably take him out. Uh, what we see is a son who just trusts his dad, who listens like, well, dad, I know that you follow God and I trust God. And if God told you to do this, here we go. He just willingly gets bound up. 
It says that he laid him on top of the altar. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He's right there. It's like in the act. But, thank goodness for this but, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, like screams it twice. Uh, the first time he said, Abraham, Abraham says, here I am. Now he's like, stop, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham, it says, it says Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Uh, I wonder what he was looking at at that moment. If, if you're a dad and you're, you're that close to this, this ridiculous moment, you've got to be like nasty, like snotty tears. He can't, he, he, he's, he's just stopped in the middle of this heartbreaking moment. He's giving up his most precious thing to God, and then he stopped at the moment. It says that he, he lifted up his eyes. I think he wiped some tears out of his eyes. And behold, behind him a ram was caught in a thicket. This is the part of the story we all remember by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And I guarantee you, Isaac is worshiping like he's never worshiped before in his life. This is the best church moment he's ever had. Like, yeah, another ram. Sweet. So, verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. He, he dedicates this place. God, God did a thing here. God will provide. And then we as, as New Testament people, we know that the, the temple was built there. And then we know that the lamb, the perfect son, goes to the same place and is is sacrifice, that God does not withhold his own son from us. Uh, interesting thing about this, I put a little note, if you want to look this up later, uh, just look up the end of John chapter 8 on your own time. Uh, but there's this moment where Jesus is standing in the same spot, and uh, some of the people are like, hey, who do you think you are? You think you're greater than Abraham? And Jesus almost like kind of miffed that they were like, he said, he said I know Abraham. I, I, Abraham's a big fan of me. Abraham celebrated in the spot when he saw my day coming. He, he basically is standing here. He's like, I've been here before. I know the guy that you're talking about. But that's in John chapter 8 if you want to you wanna look at it. On this mount, the Lord shall provide. And for the next thousand years, the Jewish people sacrificed in that location hoping that their sins would be covered. Every year they'd have uh, the, the Day of Atonement. They would try to sacrifice for the sins. And then the next year they'd have to come back until one day the perfect lamb, the perfect son, shows up in the same location. We'll keep reading. Uh, I want to see what, what, is, what does God say to Abraham uh, after all this is over? Well, he, he repeats the promise. He says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The word nations... Uh, is often translated as as Gentiles. You, you and I, unless unless you're in here and you're like a Jewish person who can say, I fall under the promise of Abraham, I follow Jewish law, um, you have to know that God is promising Abraham, not only is he going to bless the Jewish people through you, but he's going to bless you. He's going to bless your, your nations. Abraham is asked to give up something that is incredibly 
precious to him. So, I mean, we, we don't even have a category for this act of obedience, this act of, of sacrifice. I want to I make uh, two observations uh, about this passage that I think, think can, can help us here. One is this, is that when asked, when, when God asked Abraham, uh, Abraham did not withhold anything from God. Anything that God asked for, Abraham was willing to give, even the son that was a part of the promise. Like, how can God complete his promise when Isaac is, I, this is, this is in contradiction. I don't understand this, and he still trusts his God. Abraham surrendered in that moment. And so, so much of our Christian life, you and I, so much of our Christian life is an act of surrender day by day. Surrendering to a God who knows better than us, who makes promises. And in the moment, we think this circumstance or this next step seems to be in contradiction to this. What are we supposed to do? Abraham is celebrated in the Old and New Testament for one thing, not, not his actions. His actions were all over the place. Sometimes he was faithful and sometimes his actions, you know, he, twice Abraham was scared that a man was going to attack him and he told his wife, hey, pretend you're my sister. And he would give her over to him to protect himself. He is not the best of people, but in moments where he's asked, he is faithful. When it's time to surrender, uh, he is faithful. I wonder, I wonder how many times or what maybe God is asking you and I to surrender. Like in this, in this, in the season that we're in, are there things that God is asking you to surrender to Him? And would you be willing to do it? Now, there are some unhealthy things that I think, I think if, if any of these things are true, you're like, I know God wants me to surrender these things. Things like addiction and, uh, like toxic relationships and, you know, bad habits. So those kinds of things are like, there are things that we hang on to because of whatever reason, because of our past, because of comfort, whatever. Um, and God might be calling us to surrender them, to take them to the altar and be like, I just, I'm going to trust you with this. I'm going to give it away. I think, I think there are issues um, that are less obvious that God may want us to surrender to him, uh, issues of, of pride. Uh, I wonder how easy it would, it would have been for Abraham to be like, I got my kid, I got all that I need from God, you're on your own, God, I'm going to go follow like this other God now for a while. He, he didn't. Um, I, wonder, I wonder if if God may be asking some of us to surrender some control, um, some predictability, we try to hang on so so much to our plans and our things. Maybe God's calling you and it's like, you know, I, I just need you to trust me with the next three years of your life. Just trust that this next decision is the only one that you need to be aware of right now instead of waiting for more information. I wonder if God is asking us to surrender pieces of, of comfort, things that we've just grown so comfortable with a day in and day out of uh, that that we're not ready to give up. And yet you hear the still small voice, you hear him say, just just, I'm going to put you in a wild spot. I'm going to put you in a place that you're stretched a little bit more than you've ever been stretched. I just, here, here's what God may be saying. I just want you to trust me. I want you to trust me with your Isaac for a minute. And then we choose. Are we going to, to trust him? Probably the, the, the most difficult for us to let go of is issues of shame and guilt. Jesus, Jesus says that, you know, the cross is sufficient. There is therefore now no condemnation. That's Paul. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And yet the number of Christians who have been followers of Jesus who walk around with their shame and their guilt as a badge or walk around with their trauma. I am this. You can't break me. Maybe God is saying, look, I need you to surrender that piece of your identity and just let me be your identity instead of that history, that story, that, that trauma. Whatever it is, um, 
The Christian life is nothing if not an act of surrender. And if, if you haven't surrendered something to the Lord in recent memory, uh, there's a good chance that's the next thing you're asked to be obedient to, to surrender to him. So when asked, Abraham didn't withhold anything. The second thing, uh, observation that I want to make is this mountain. It's the same place as where the temple is. It's the same place that Jesus will go and be sacrificed on a cross next to it. Just like Isaac had to carry his own lumber up the hill for the sacrifice, so too did Jesus carry his cross. And this is the truth, is that without being asked, because none of us could ask God for this, God did not withhold his own son. Abraham didn't withhold Isaac from God, and God did not withhold Jesus from us. We would be wise to remember the distance that your God is willing to go to restore you back to peace, to the peace that was promised in the Garden of Eden, the peace of perfection. Um, I want to look at one more passage uh, as we close. Romans 8. At the end of, of Romans 8, uh, Paul is uh, he's making this case. Like, how far was Jesus, or how far was God willing to go to, to save us? And if God is willing to go that far, then how much faith should we have in that? We, we are the only religion on this planet whose God chose to die on our behalf. Every other religion is like, hey, you guys die for me. And maybe I'll take it, maybe I won't. This is the only Christianity, the only religion where Jesus says, I, I've got this. I'll go to the cross. And so Paul, as he's reflecting on it, he says this line, and you, you probably, like, you've either heard this phrase or you have it on a coffee cup, or it's like, this is your life verse, right? The first 831, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What a, what a powerful phrase. If God is for us, who can be against us? But here's the question. How much is God for you? How, how far is he willing to go? It says in verse 32, he just continues the thought. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God, uh, excuse me, it is God who justifies. He's saying it's God who justifies, that, that God did this. And so any, any left shame, any left condemnation, it's, of, it's manufactured. The judge is satisfied with the son's payment. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who also was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The, the son that God gave up for us, uh, he came back to life. And now he's standing, according to Paul, at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for you and I. Imagine, imagine that conversation. We, we mess up. We, we have a moment of guilt. We have a moment of shame, and we feel something, and it's like, what are we going to do? And the one who died for you is now talking to the Father. He's like, hey, Father, let me, let me just, I just want to pray for him. I just, like, let's give him some strength. I want, I want, I want her, uh, to, to, to not have any shame or guilt there. There's, there's forgiveness. He's interceding for us. It says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Like, if, if God is willing to give up his son to make that payment, is there anything that can separate us from God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It's like, he can't think of anything that is powerful enough. 
He says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're more than conquerors for all the things in this world, not because of how powerful you are, but because of how far God was willing to go. His faithfulness to see his promise made to Adam even, to made to Noah, made to, to uh, uh, Seth, all the way at the beginning of the Old Testament. He sees those promises through to completion, and there is therefore now nothing uh, that we can't conquer. Verse 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, keep going, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here, here's, here's what we're left with. This, this God, when we read the Old Testament, uh, it, we see the promises that he made come to life in Jesus. Jesus was a better Abraham. He led us better. He was a better Adam. He was a better representative of who we were. He's a better Noah. He's a better, uh, he's a better ark. Uh, he carries us through the storm. And, and because God was willing to go that far, what, what is left in this world that would be more powerful than that? There's, there's not many things in this world that will cause me to want to fight you. Um, but if you mess with my son, I become uh, uh, animated very, very quickly. Uh, if you mess with my family, I become animated. I will do anything for my family. And Jesus volunteers to go to the cross. And because of that payment, Paul is like, what in the world could stand against that God? Who, who, who can separate you from him? This, this getting first things first, when we read Romans without understanding Abraham, without understanding Isaac, when we read Romans as that, um, it's just like, oh, well, maybe, maybe. But when we see that, like, God, God, like, he, he is landing these planes that he began all the way with Abraham, I just want to ask, like, are you, are you leaning on yourself and your own sacrifices? Or do you trust in the name of Jesus for your hope? What can separate you from God if you trust in Jesus? Paul's conclusion is, is nothing. Our hope uh, is in Jesus. As we um, begin and continue uh, this Christmas season, we run towards uh, Christmas. We're running towards the day that we celebrate the, the awakening of the promise, where Jesus shows up on the scene and then he marches to the cross for your sin, for my sin. Um, and because of that, nothing can separate us from God. If you feel separated from God, if you have shame, if you have guilt, if you have, if you have never confessed Jesus as Lord, there's one word I want you to remember. The word is surrender. Every follower of Jesus to confess Jesus as Lord is to surrender your own lordship and to trust Jesus to be your Lord and to live in his promise that his sacrifice was enough. God gave Abraham the out. He didn't request the son at the end. But when Jesus asked, hey, is there anything else that we can do, Father? The Father says, no, this is the plan. We go to the cross. Jesus wasn't withheld from us. Let me pray. Uh, we'll watch the cue together. Father, as we, uh, as we close out with, with Abraham, um, we see how your promise has carried for, for thousands of years. May we where we find strength and that you haven't given up on us, despite what, what feelings, what grief may be around us in this moment. Um, your promises stand. You're faithful. 
You bring us hope. You restore us back to peace. May we, may we taste uh, the perfection of the garden in our day-to-day lives and see your kingdom at work in our families and in our homes and our community. Um, as we move towards Christmas, may we remember that the king was born uh, and he, he chose the sacrifice that all of us owed and none of us could afford. Uh, may we find peace in that and, uh, and walk in truth. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.